One of the things you might have gathered is that the title for this course was deliberately ambiguous, in a sense. The freedom to love. It can mean two things, and it obviously has two poles or two axes around which the weekend is going to revolve. The idea of freedom and the idea of love. And how, in a sense, what I'd like to say right at the beginning is how these two go hand in hand. In terms of all Buddhist practice, then particularly in the traditions in which I was trained, then freedom is a major component of that. But also that freedom allows us to engage in genuine responsiveness, in genuine openness, giving rise to compassion, giving rise to love. Now, love itself, a very strange word in these day and age, um, something that's wanting in our world, we certainly find its opposite, particularly at this moment in time, flying around quite considerably in terms of hatred. There's an awful lot of it being propagated through the press, through the media, in day-to-day existence, it's there. So there's a pressing need, I think, for us all to examine our relationship to this word, this feeling, this emotion, because it's such a familiar word, it's so part of our vocabulary, that in a sense I think we are misled into thinking we actually know what it is. We're often actually, as I say, we are just misled, rather than really knowing what it is. Love has a history, too. And I don't mean for any individual one of us, but love has a history throughout, certainly, the West, and it's a changing, fashionable concept, if one looks at it through the West, and if you, for example, care to plot it through the history of Western literature, you'll find it has many, many guises, comes in many, many different forms. The Greeks were very lucky, I might say this at one point, at this point. The early Greeks were very lucky in the sense that they actually had three words for love, where we only have one, which covers many, many things. They used the word which is eros, which spoke of obviously erotic love, the love between man and woman, not often the love between man and man or woman and woman in Greek society. They also spoke of something called philos. Now, any of you who know anything about this will get the idea that, of course, that's related to the word philosophy. It was the love of wisdom. And then they had another word for it, which I think is a word, perhaps, that comes a little bit close, but without one major concept being included, to the Buddhist idea, which certainly came along with the New Testament, which was the notion of something called agape which was the disinterested love of God for his creation. It was a kind of no-string love. So that, you know, within the Christian cultures, the early Christian cultures, they felt overseen by this disinterested love which allowed them to be with all their foibles and all their problems. Something that's severely lacking in our culture, perhaps, is this notion of disinterested love. Um, 
In fact, sometimes it seems to me that the only way that people can get it often is by seeing a therapist to get this kind of disinterested love, this kind of disinterested attention that's required to, in order for somebody to be seen, to tell their story, to be in a sense loved, but not in an erotic way, not in the way which involves attachment, not in the way that involves jealousy and all the other emotions that come in. So part of perhaps what we were doing over this weekend is examining what perhaps love is and isn't here. St. Paul in the New Testament, of course, describes love by what it is not rather than by what it is. As if in a sense you can't really get to it. Because as soon as you label it and say this is it, it's gone. It's disappeared. That sounds like so many relationships that people think they know what it is and then it's gone because they never had it, they never really grasped it. So St. Paul enters into trying to define this concept negatively by a negative approach, by saying what it is not and trying to circumscribe it that way. But what we do know is that in our society that love is something that we all need, we all require, but we often get it wrong, too. Extremely wrong. In our societies, love is the missing component, often. Perhaps, and this is not just a cynical view, I hope, it's our societies are often driven by what in Buddhist terms I would jokingly call the unholy trinity, which is greed, hatred and delusion rather than by any openness and love and compassion. So things are driven in a way which is repeatable, habitual, circular. We often find ourselves in the same places without really having learned anything, having made the same mistakes again and again and again, without really having experienced love, compassion, freedom, openness, any of these qualities which certainly in the Buddhist tradition are talked about so much. So it's breaking free of the cycle of habit which keeps us bound to forms of behaviour. And these forms of behaviour are forms of behaviour that give rise to, well, let's just name a few of them. Anxiety, discomfort, pain, frustration. I'm sure you can fill in some of the missing gaps here. The Buddhist tradition has a word for this. In Pali and Sanskrit it's known as Dukkha, which I know some of you have probably been attending retreats here for a while, and the word might be familiar to you. Usually translated as suffering, but it means far, far more than that. It means something like the totality of our unsatisfactory experience. You know, just try and grab that one for a second. <laughs> it means everything that's unsatisfactory that happens to you. That is Dukkha. I often jokingly talk about this. 
as being worse from the big pain. Suffering really encompasses only one part of the spectrum. The spectrum of the sharp end. Yeah, the extremely painful things that we can recognise. The illness, the sickness, perhaps death. Sometimes mental distress, anxiety. Those are the really sharp end of it. Which we can recognise and perhaps could really quite meaningfully label as being suffering. Yet this concept within the Buddhist tradition means far, more, far, far more than that. Because at the bottom end of the spectrum, it might be not getting the chocolate out of the box that you wanted because somebody else has eaten it. Not being in a place where you want to be, feeling uncomfortable somehow. Not being with the person you want to be with. So it goes from the minutiae of our experience, from those little, little unsatisfactory moments to the big, overpowering, existential conditions which sometimes overcome us and we have very little control over. So it's not just, as I say, this powerful end, it's the bottom end of the spectrum too. Everything that we find unsatisfactory but the trouble is about all this unsatisfactory experience is a lot of it created by us again and again and again and again habitually it's as if we're attached habitually to feeling uncomfortable one of the things that I often perhaps formulate in a way which is probably sounding quite challenging and I think it's meant to be because the tradition of Buddhism also put it almost as a challenge and this is perhaps the other end of the spectrum to love which allows love possibility I don't say necessarily actuality but allows its possibility and this is the spectrum of freedom freedom in this way I think formulated within Buddhist traditions is very much actually the challenge do you have the courage to be free? or do you wish to be trapped by the known? by the familiar? and remember the known and the familiar based on this view might simply be the anxiety, the pain, the suffering, the unsatisfactoriness which you know and is very familiar to you and there might be fear of letting that go giving it up moving into other experiences experiences which are not controllable and quantifiable in terms of the pain that we normally understand in our day-to-day existence so these traditions I think offer very much the challenge to us do we have that courage to be free because it requires commitment it requires energy to generate and to let go surprisingly enough it requires a degree of energy a degree of persistence to engage in the letting go process now any of you who know anything about the traditions will probably be aware that one of the conditions that the Buddha identified for us 
actually being in this situation at all, in this kind of unsatisfactory suffering condition, is part of that unholy trinity. Greed, except greed is not just simply greed, it's craving. Here, it's craving. The word in its original languages really translates as an unquenchable thirst. And that unquenchable thirst leads to attachment. And attachment itself in the original languages, or the word has another connotation, which means a fuel which feeds the craving. Now often, our so-called love relationships are based on craving and attachment, agreed. They're not based on, again, that openness, the freedom, the letting be. So it's the love that lets be. Remember, I said that Greek word encompassed perhaps something quite important that certainly in the Western world seems to be lost, which is a kind of disinterested love. It is love without attachment, love without strings. And it's important perhaps, perhaps to contemplate that, to think about that to perhaps move into an openness which allows that kind of love to arise. More often than not, and I indicated this at the very beginning by talking about, well, one of the facets we know in our world at the moment flying around quite considerably is hate. Hate is the very opposite. It's that which restricts the growth of love. It restricts the mind. It chains it. It's the very opposite of freedom of mind. It's the chained, debilitated mind. I was talking to some of the managers earlier on, and one of the particular slogans that has struck me since the horrific incident in New York the other week is actually from some protesters in America itself who have been kind of campaigning and one of the things they've actually put up is an eye for an eye equals blindness. It doesn't equal any insight. And perhaps it's an old truism that hate is not conquered by hate. That violence is not conquered by violence. Hate is only conquered by love, <coughs> and violence is only conquered by love. So it's the opposite which is required. So the question for all of us is how can we let that arise? Because all too often the love that arises is perhaps, and it's for all of you to examine this individually and in a sense I'm talking in generalisation so you always have to apply it to your own condition. The love that often arises is a love which is based on attachment. 
that is based on me me is being the centre and so the loved object the loved person becomes something which simply mirrors me rather than that openness again that I spoke of that lets the other be the great Christian mystic Meister Eckhart and it was echoed by other German thinkers later even in the 20th century spoke of again a letting be he called it a galatenheit a releasing where true love lay in a releasing into their own being rather than controlling so these are the two models we have perhaps of love the love that lets be the love that often not just within Buddhist traditions but within mystical traditions in general and I can think of Sufism and I can certainly think of some of the Christian mystics but there right at the heart of Buddhism is this love that lets be and the attached almost Hollywood idea of what love is about the sentimentalism that's often involved in it but it's certainly erotic love love with attachment but the very key of all of this the very key perhaps is the transcendence of that dictatorial me right at the centre of our experience the transcendence of self that's so often spoken about in Buddhist tradition spoken about the self that wishes to control and to be the centre the Tibetans have a lovely word for it I mean, actually in Tibetan they talk about nage, which actually means the I as king that's their word for the ego it means the I as king kind of centre of the universe that wishes to control everything so it's letting go of that dissolving that now with that dissolution we have to dissolve too lots of the emotions that surround that and kind of foster it keep it alive the obvious emotions are the ones that in Buddhism are spoken about as being the negative emotions that doesn't mean that we have to be ashamed of them doesn't mean we necessarily have to go away and kind of just stomp down on them and repress them but it means that they're negative in the sense that they create unwholesome conditions they distort reality they are in a sense they have a cognitive dimension to them they are ways of knowing the world if I know the world through for example hatred and anger then it's a very different world through a world perhaps that's known through love and joy and I'll let that sink in for a second because it's such an important idea that in a sense the world of the person who is primarily riddled with hatred with anger with aggressive thought that world is so so different 
the person from the person who is moved to action through the wellsprings of compassion, friendliness, joyfulness. In a sense, they are opposite worlds. They are the same world, of course, but seen in two completely different ways. One which is distorting out of all recognition and the other which sees and sees and moves towards the other whomever that other might be. So within the Buddhist tradition this is why the Buddha is spoken of for example as being an awakened one. I dislike intensely the word an enlightened one um, because the actual word means awakened woken up he's woken up to the way things are woken up to impermanent and no self in particular so he sees reality and lives in accordance with it now I always find it quite a challenge actually I don't know if you think about it because um, if you think about the Buddha as being an awakened one, as I so often say, that means you and I are actually stumbling around in a kind of sleepwalk half the time, never really seeing things as they are. And even if we do, and I don't say see, but even if we hear and often understand, we don't act in accordance with that understanding. In other words, it never becomes part of the heart. It never becomes part of our emotional centre. Now, to perhaps just correct a distortion that often people have about Buddhism and Buddhist practices, and I'm not speaking here from any particular tradition, that Buddhism has kind of a, a, a negative view of the emotions. It doesn't. What it has is a very realistic view of the emotions. There's emotions which are helpful, wholesome, in helping us to understand and be with others in this shared world. And there are emotions which are distorting and destructive and violent. And those are the ones not to be fostered, not to be cultivated. So classic Buddhist treatises generally divide you know, emotions up into those which are to be cultivated, joy, equanimity, love, compassion. All of these emotions are to be cultivated. Whereas anger, greed, hatred, delusion, all of these ways of being in the world are the ones that are to be replaced by the positive, wholesome emotions. But first there has to be the recognition. There has to be the understanding of where you are in your sense of being, in your emotional life. There can't be repression. There has to be that absolute recognition. <coughs> it's a bit like the addict. And in a sense, we're in a sense all addicted to negative ways of behaving negative emotions. We have to free ourselves 
on that kind of stimulus response reaction that so often that we're just enmeshed in again something I say very very often but I think it really does encompass our position is often and I say always but often we're like the ultimate Pavlov's dog if any of you know what Pavlov's dog is Pavlov's dog was trained so that when you rang the bell it salivated at the mere thought of food and we're like the Pavlov's dog because it's a stimulus and reaction that so many of the emotions arise for us just based on a mere stimulus we see something we like and we want it we see something we dislike and we're doing the opposite we're hating it, disliking it, trying to push it away as quickly as possible I remember I said the other pole, love, love is one pole of what I'm talking about this evening and what we're going to explore in the next couple of days and freedom is the other and if it's simply a case of stimulus and response and if we're like trained dogs here if we're just simply that then there is no freedom there is no freedom to be and there's no freedom to love because even love is a conditioned response so we're unpicking a very tight knot that's often the knot that we've got ourselves into that we find ourselves in and we have to be realistic in understanding the knot we have to be realistic in understanding the addiction to certain ways of behaving the addiction to certain ways of responding in order to allow true responsiveness to arise if there is to be genuine responsiveness there has to be freedom there can't simply be this conditioned response oh I see that and I react in this particular way I like this and I dislike that and I divide the world up in terms of my likes and my dislikes and we have no freedom when we do that we're just bouncing from pole to pole so is it any wonder that we find ourselves in similar situations often in terms of our life situations in terms of our relationships with people our friendships and that we make the same mistakes again and again and again and again and then perhaps in one way this is a very positive way of interpreting what actually rebirth could be in Buddhism being reborn again and again and again and again ad infinitum into destructive often negative situations where we find ourselves repeating what we've already done now I'm deliberately painting it very black so I hope you'll come back to me on the kind of question <laughs> session I'm deliberately trying to paint it in this picture because I'm trying to paint a picture of our enmeshment in this habitual ways of behaviour in order to see the direness of the situation that we're often in find ourselves in and why, for example and I'm only talking about Western society I don't want to talk about Eastern societies because they have their own set of problems but why Western societies are so riddled 
with despair and depression and all the sorts of mental states that we see arising within our society. That despair and the incidence of the depression arising within our society. In fact, one rather cynical American psychiatrist suggested that everybody should take Prozac because the human condition was depressing. (laughs) (laughs) So I think as a response to that, we need to show that because you don't need to take a drug in order for the human situation to be not depressing. That it's actually involved, that depressiveness is involved often in our patterns of behaviour, our mental conditioning, our ways of approach. So it's breaking through that, opening that up. Now, I don't say that's easy. I'm not suggesting that. But it's exciting. That's what I'm suggesting. Rather than being on the margins of life, we can be right at the heart of it. Right engaged in it. There's a character in one of James Joyce's stories who's kind of every man in a way. And uh, one of the repeating phrases he uses about himself, he says, I feel an outcast from life's feast. It's kind of always struck a resonance with me, as this often is the way that so many people feel within our society. So in order not to feel an outcast, we engage in all kinds of aberrant behaviour in order to make ourselves feel part of it. Hence the industry, I think, that abounds in the West of trying to amuse ourselves to death. Of trying to just keep ourselves amused until the inevitable happens. (laughs) So how do we overcome that? How do we not feel on the margins? Well, the movement in is through a key word, and I know many, many of you have heard it, particularly if you've been on the truth here, is this key word of awareness. Of being aware of what is going on. Awareness is the key to opening up the wonder, the beauty, the awe of life. Now, that's not to say it's not going to come replete sometimes with unhappy situations, distressing situations, but it's not just going to be that, it's going to be a lot more as well. And it's the movement away from a life perhaps that's lived on these margins that can be seen in terms of a lack of intensity, a low level of intensity about it. If I was using kind of televisual terms to describe it, do you want monochrome or would you like, you know, would you like technicolour? Would you like to make the move into colour, perhaps even digital, <laughs> using these analogies, to generate vibrancy? And it's interesting that actually one way of translating one of the major terms about that's used in Buddhist terms about this kind of cyclical, habitual, round-to-round existence, in particular in Tibetan language, indicates exactly that, a low level of intensity, not living life to its full vibrancy, but just living at this very, very low level. So awareness is one of the keys 
degenerating, upping the levels of our intensity, engaging with what is happening, what is occurring, not letting it pass us by, noting it. Meditation, or probably what I prefer to call cultivation, is one of the methods of doing this. Yet, let's not get too narrow an idea of what that cultivation is. It's not necessarily just sitting on your cushions here in meditation rooms. It's engaging in all sorts of activities. It's engaging in, for example, this is where love comes into it again, interpersonal relations. In other words, engaging in those relations with awareness, with sensitivity, with kindness, rather than that desensitized, reactive pattern that can so often happen for us. In other words, to be with somebody in this loving relationship is to truly be with them. To truly be with them. The very famous Taradon monk, who died, I think, in the 80s, early 80s, clinical Piedasa, talked about this as being the linking of heart to heart. But not in the sense of romantic attachment but the opening of the heart to each other so that true communication can take place. So this opening up to the other is also about increasing the vibrancy of our day-to-day lived experience because, if you haven't noticed, we're in a world with others. That's the way we live it. We have to engage in communication from day to day. But so much that passes for communication isn't. Because it's infected, infested with those primarily unwholesome motivations of dislike, aggression, jealousy, fear, I could go on cataloguing them, and there's an awful lot of them, that motivates so much of our behaviour. Yet, the good news is, from time to time, that's all broken through. We break through, we have a burst of sunlight, which allows us generally to be, to see with the other. Now that often occurs, often occurs, when somebody is distressed, when we actually see them, in a sense, stripped naked for a brief moment in time, and then we open to them. Now, in a way, that's very heartening, and in a way, it's kind of a sad, because that openness could be there all the time. Only, for, unfortunately, we often believe in the facade that we all put on. I mean, in Greek theatre, you have these wonderful masks and everybody's hiding behind the mask. <laughs> There's never really the naked face in front of somebody. 
there's never that opening to the other. Now that real ethical relationship, because this is what it's about, the love relationship is a truly ethical relationship. And I'm not talking again, and I'll talk a bit more about this tomorrow night, I'm not talking about this kind of sentimentalised, attached form of erotic love that's so often taken by us, because I say we're familiar with that word, we see it in novels, we see it in films, and I say it has a history in Western thought, in Western culture, that is taken as being the epitome of the love relationship. Yet we need to stop for a second and question that as being perhaps the, the apogee of the love relationship and see it as being something else this development of genuine ethical relationships So much again, so I'm putting it on the wider global sphere, isn't, of course, governed by anything that could be remotely called love relationships, genuine communication, genuine discourse. There's a French philosopher who died in the 90s, actually. He talks about this ethical relationship and it has so much resonance with Buddhism as actually being the openness of one face to another face. And when I look into the face of the other, and when you look into my face, I look into your face, I'm staring into an infinity. Something that can't be captured, ultimately. Something that can't be subsumed. Because you know how we all like to pigeonhole people. <laughs> it's like, oh, they're that sort of person, or I'm this sort of person. We do it about ourselves, let alone doing it about others. We say, they're that sort of person, I'm this sort of person, that's the reason why we don't get on. And all these kind of excuses that we make for ourselves. <coughs> but actually what's going on is this relationship of two infinities. Only we don't see it. We try to close it down again. And when there's a relationship of two infinities, neither of which can be captured, then love arises. What's of course often going on in interpersonal relations, and I'm going to stop in a second and give you a chance to either go to bed or come back at me with some of this stuff, often, and perhaps I suppose one of the most cynical, yet persuasive views about this comes not from any Buddhist thought or anything about what's often going on, is uh, somebody you've probably heard of called Jean-Paul Sartre, the French philosopher, playwright and novelist. Um, A, has a rather cynical relationship about being trapped in you know, hell for him with other people. That's one of his phrases. And also he talks about the attempt to capture the other's freedom by capturing their love. And when you've captured your, their love, in other words, their freedom, then you despise them. 
for having released it in the first place. So the kind of sadomasochistic war is the way he paints it. Cynical, but unfortunately it has too many resonances of kind of truthfulness often to completely ignore it in our relations with others. So the relation that we're talking about, that we're working towards, and I haven't even mentioned the Buddhist term yet, is this openness. An openness and lovingness which is equal, not partial. Very difficult to do. However, the relationship has to start with home, at home, we're beginning to learn to appreciate even love ourselves. Not love of the self, but love ourselves. This process, this kind of screwed up, mixed up thing that we all are, and beginning to appreciate it. And in a sense, love it. Because unless that can occur, there's very little chances of doing it to others. In other words, if we don't have the openness to ourselves, that seeing the other within ourselves, you know, that otherness which we're all trying to kind of push down, the bits we don't like about ourselves is probably a quicker way of putting it, not appreciating, don't want them there, don't like them, so I'm not going to acknowledge them. You foster an image of yourself and think about yourself in particular ways, but of course, all good repressed, you can't keep down, they always keep coming up and disrupting the way that you behave. Unless we can begin to appreciate that other within ourselves, in other words, all the warts and foibles and everything else that we all have, and begin to open towards them, appreciate them and have compassion and warmth and kindness about them, how can we begin to do that towards the genuine other, the other person who we're engaging in discourse with, communication with, day to day, in interpersonal relationships? How is that going to happen? That's the big question. So we have to, as a question of urgency, develop this kindness towards ourselves. A genuine kindness. One of the meditation masters I studied with in Sri Lanka always used to say, you know, defend your demons. You know, make pets out of them. <laughs> Learn to love them. Rather than, you know, really get yourself all terribly screwed up about it. Which often happens. And I only say this as a word of warning because often we come at it with very funny ideas about what meditation is, for example what these cultivation practices are about. Where we don't want to necessarily look at all that stuff, but looking at all that other stuff, the unpleasant bit, is so, so important. It's kind of getting a feel of it. Almost tangibly touching it and acknowledging it and befriending it rather than just criticising and repressing and doing all sorts of things that we can do with those elements within ourselves. So it's befriending that side of ourselves rather than just, as I say, cultivating the nice things that we like about ourselves. And he was always very fond of saying, I always remember this phrase, 
Now, I see people doing Westerners doing meditation, they always look far more miserable than when they started. <laughs> you know, what is, it's, just like, it's just this come up to people sometimes and say, why are you giving yourself such a hard time? <laughs> because we do, so often. So it's learning to be kind and to befriend yourself. And allowing ourselves the possibility of loving. Of developing, now here's the big term, the Buddhist term, loving kindness towards others. But only if we can develop loving kindness towards ourselves. I think I've probably said enough of that. I can go on, but people generally have a problem shutting me up rather than getting me going. <laughs> right, over to you. If you have any questions or you might be too tired or I might have bored you to tears this evening, um, in which case we start again in the morning, but if not, feel free to ask any questions you want to about what we're going to be doing or anything I've talked about really. I'd like to ask you a question about something that you haven't talked about. Mm-hmm. It's kind of on the edge, which is mindfulness. Could you say something about mindfulness? Well, I usually use an alternative term. I use awareness as opposed to mindfulness. Um, it's just a, a predilection of mine. I actually prefer, and it translates the term better, awareness, mindfulness. I tend to think our minds are full of all sorts of stuff. So, <laughs> people have awareness rather than mindfulness. <laughs> so, I have talked about it in general. I will go in and talk about it a lot more tomorrow, tomorrow evening. But yeah, it's right at the centre of what we're doing. It's right at the centre. It's that part which is engaging us taking us into the centre of life rather than leaving us on the periphery. When we're on the periphery, we're generally desensitised and, you know, to use the phrase you're using, non-mindful about what's going on. We're just kind of making do rather than really, really engaged. So care is much wider, much more open. And caring, to genuinely care, in a sense, lacks that egotism which concerns is so dominated by Remember, concern is about me, whereas caring is about you. So I'm concerned about people who are close to me, and concerned about things which are, you know, to quote a, a radio program in this country, me and mine, or mine and yours, or whatever, but me and mine particularly. So everything is closed down in terms of my responsiveness to the world. As I say, in this narrowly circumscribed area or arena in which we behave. Care is this opening onto the world. In fact, one 20th century thinker describes caring, and I think this is very appropriate and very, very Buddhist, although he knew next to nothing about Buddhism, that we are most ourselves when we are caring. That's when we, are, we really are ourselves. However, that self is not an ego. It's not this fixed thing, this fixed centre, which controls and manipulates. In genuine caring, when we open to the other, perhaps, true responsiveness can take place. In other words, there's a kind of emptying out towards the other, an emptying out of my own selfish motivations, my own selfish concerns, 
in which I can genuinely respond to what the other needs. Again, mentioning that thinker who I talked about last night, who said that, of course, the meeting of the two faces was a meeting of infinities. Remember, we talked about that very briefly last night, this meeting of infinities. When you look into the face of the other, you are not looking into something which can be encapsulated, totalised, but you're looking into an infinity. Somebody or someone who continuously escapes you, no matter how hard you try to capture them. Also, the face asks for care. shows vulnerability too. Now, in a sense, this is a situation we're all in. We're all searching. We're all wanting to be seen, all wanting to be recognised. However, in a world which is dominated by egotism, we feel isolated, cut off, because there is very, very little care in that world. Egos treat everything else as objects for its gratification or for their gratification. So, we perhaps seek solace, pleasure in another. We invest the other as being the source of our happiness. And in doing so, sometimes we call it love. In searching for this form of care. We invest the other as being the source of our pleasure, the source of our happiness. Now, I don't know if you've uh, been involved in this, but this one's doomed for failure, genuinely. (laughs) The other is never going to give you happiness. Happiness can be created, but it can't be given in that way. The other can never be that object which provides you with (coughs) happiness, with contentment, with peace. In fact, if the other is treated like an object, and remember this is quite horrifying in a way, and I hope, despite me being slightly humorous about it, it does sound horrifying, because if we treat the other, the other person in relationships as an object, then it's that totally objectifying, manipulative relationship where the other cannot be at all except for the one who supposedly possesses them because they're the sole source of their happiness and their pleasure. And of course what comes in with this is something is an object which gives you gratification or at least you believe it gives you gratification or pleasure then you get fearful about losing it, having it taken away. This puts human beings on the same par as all kinds of valued objects. All kinds of valued objects. Where we worry, fret, and try to build up some kind of insurance against loss. But there is no insurance because there is the implacability of impermanence, change. Remember what I was saying last night, the other continuously changes, 
Yet if we have a fixed idea of them, or ideal of them, then we might achieve some kind of fixation, some kind of stasis for a period of time. But eventually the kind of movement from the image and the actual is so great that it can't be ignored any longer. And then perhaps changes proceed and all kinds of trouble starts. But there is no growth in that. Now I hope you hear that because it's about a fixed ideal. And ideals themselves are very worrying because they are ego objects. A Freudian term, by the way, some of you might have heard of it. They're objects for the ego, which we invest a lot in. We invest a tremendous amount of power to these ideals. But the one thing that ramifies throughout the whole of the Buddhist world no matter what tradition it is, is that idealism is the death of what is. It's not reality. It's not what's actually happening, what is actually going on. So given these circumstances, with concern, with the turning of the other into the object, with fixation, idealization, the search for gratification. It's no wonder so often that human relationships are doomed to failure. But that's not how it has to be. And I think, again, whilst giving you the kind of pessimistic news, if we get that very clear about what's happening, what goes wrong in the kind of malfunctioning of the human relationship in what we generally term love. If we can get that clear, if we can look deeply into it, then we can perhaps see ways of genuinely caring and genuinely loving, genuinely opening ourselves, giving something. Now this goes through the whole range of human behaviour where we don't actually approach the other with love, with care, with concern. But I don't mean here concern in this very narrow sense. Where we approach it only, or them, from only from our own perspective. Wanting to hear what we want to hear. Projecting ahead, even when we're talking to the other, to the other person. Not allowing them to be heard. Not allowing a genuine communication to go on. One, I think, one wonderful little cartoon I came across many, many years ago, and I might have even said this at the last course I gave a guy had, but it's one that always tickles me because it, I think, shows the inauthenticity of a lot of human relationships, and particularly between the sexes, which I think is a very good one, and the imbalance of the relationship between the sexes. And it's just a cartoon strip that went something like this. That um, there's a man and a woman over what appears to be a dinner table. And there's quite a lot of the squares, you know, kind of cartoon squares. Over this dinner table. And he's kind of leaning across the table at her and she's leaning back. And above every bubble in his head he's going, me, 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 me. And it goes off about ten squares like this. 
until he obviously finally finished what he has to say. He leans back, and she leans across the table and goes, me? And he goes, oh. <laughs> I think that says a lot about the inauthenticity of a lot of human relationships, particularly about sexual relationships. Imbalances. Do we really want to hear what the other says? I mean, this is a real challenge for us all. Or are we only thinking about ourselves in that relationship? Because listening, to genuinely listen, to genuinely open up in a listening relationship, is actually perhaps to open ourselves to the other's pain as well. And I don't mean that it necessarily has to even be expressed in the actual verbal, in terms of the actual words that are being said. But as we know, so much communication goes on below the surface. In speech, it occurs perhaps in intonation, in the split between the words of what's being said and the meaning that's being conveyed at another level. Now that takes receptiveness, responsiveness, awareness, to pick up on that. And that's just a very kind of crude example because so much goes on in these days what we popularly call body language as well. The signs that people give us that we're not responsive to. And so either in, in, that, in that non-responsiveness we can appear uncaring and often we are because again we're tied down to our concerns tied down often to what we want to hear. How much um, probing or how much investigation often goes on into the split, say, between, you know, how do you feel today? I feel fine. <laughs> how much probing goes on in those relationships? Not very much, often, because we're happy with the verbal formulation, with literally what the words say, not with what is actually happening. So, the practices that we've been engaged in, and I mean, I always feel by the time we come to the end of the weekend, and I know we're not there yet, but by the time we come to the end of the weekend, I think we're just warming up in the sense of, of creating sensitivity and creating responsiveness. That if we genuinely are entering into these practices, we're entering into practices of sensitization are really beginning to sensitise ourselves. Now, often for meditators, people engaging in these practices of matter and everything, they seem very artificial initially. They kind of, as you know, they're very staid. Okay, first you do this, and then you do this, and then you do this. And so one has to enter into a kind of game as if, for the period of the meditation, of generating a feeling as if I really felt. And so much of it works on the basis of actually kind of rubbing away the hard skin until we begin to, you know, almost as if we've built up a callus, and rubbing the hard skin until we can begin to feel what is going on in those practices, not just go you know, with a kind of dull <coughs> feeling that we might get through the rather callous skin that we have. So it's a process of sensitising 
of, of opening us up. <coughs> now, much of the world, and perhaps to many this may sound cynical, and, and please do come back at me in the question and answers later on if it does, much of the world, I think, is trying actually to desensitise us. And I, by that I mean societies and governments and the whole mode of modern living. Where, for example, time itself it is at a minimum. So the chances of developing sensitivity, the chances of displaying genuine caring are minimised because I'm going like this, looking at the watch or the clock to see if I have time to genuinely care. Now, this is true of us for individuals and it's true of us as a society, particularly in the so-called caring professions. And I have quite a lot to do with people in the caring professions. And I see that that quality of care is being eroded by the dominance of time and the dominance of money and the dominance of quantification of outcomes, for example. So in senses, in one sense we are fighting a tide. Um, and many, for much of the time, we can feel at odds with what's going on. But it doesn't have to be like that, because the sensitisation makes us, again, sensitive and open to what is really there. To people who are, as is often said in the Buddhist scriptures, only trying to find happiness. That's all they're trying to do. Remember in the meditation this afternoon, and I said, of course, that all beings, no matter how horrible they've been, how violent, aggressive on occasions they've been, all in their own kind of very misguided way, often extremely screwed up ways, are trying to find some kind of happiness. And I joked last night with you that um, in general we're just not very good at it. We tend to try and find happiness and we misplace it. We think it's going to be there in places where it's not. Perhaps this is one of the primary messages of Buddhism, certainly in to do with you know, something that's right at the beginning of the Eightfold Path in the classic formulation, which is right view. Well, right view is obviously opposed to wrong view. And wrong view is searching for happiness where it is not. In other words, thinking that things are going to give you happiness. And here things, as you know, they relate to the beginning of my talk, can also be people, because we turn them into things. We turn them into you know, artefacts, receptacles for our desires, receptacles for our gratification rather than them being who they are. And if we do that, if we pursue our happiness in terms of the material, you know, let's, let's just forget about people for a second, and if we pursue it in terms of the material, well, it's perhaps endless task. An endless task. The Buddha identifies one of the sources of our, well, the major source of our problem. The problem that we have, which is uh, the problem of dukkha, 
as I explained to you last night, the totality of our unsatisfactoriness as being due to what he identifies as craving. The actual Pali Sanskrit word is not just craving, which sounds sometimes a little innocuous in English, but it means absolute unquenchable thirst for something. It's like a man or a woman who's got an overpowering thirst that can never be slaked at all by no matter what they drink. Not only that, and this is the compound, the phenomenon, not only that, we stoke up this thirst. We keep it going. In other words, we do all the wrong things to keep it going. Now this gets again innocuously translated into English. Uh, the innocuous translation is attachment. It's really grasping. Grasping fuels the craving. So we grasp after things, we have to hold on to them. But of course, the one thing that we discover in this world, which is why again this comes to part of the wrong view, is that things are impermanent. <coughs> now that's something that's very hard for us to accept a lot of the time. That the stuff <coughs> of this world, including you and I, are impermanent phenomena. We do not remain the same, and nothing remains the same. No matter what it is, that we perceive around us that certainly is of human making is permanent. We look at the oldest edifices of human construction and they no longer are the same as they were when they were constructed. And that's an obvious fact. The world itself is a play of shifting forces. You know, with movements in the Earth's crust, with the you know, even something like the Himalaya is still continuing to rise, and so it's growing all the time. So nothing is remaining the same. But you are and I are kind of emotionally hanging on to the idea of permanence, of something being there for us all the time. Now, if we invest our search for happiness, be it in a person or be it in things, in terms of permanence, then I would suggest we're onto a loser. There's no way that's going to happen because people do not remain the same and the world does not remain the same. Our most prized possessions will get lost, get broken, get stolen, and all the sorts of things that happen to them in just the everyday world. People don't remain the same. As I said both last night and this evening, people change. They change often unrecognisably from when we first met them over the years that we know them. <coughs> and of course, eventually, any mortal being is exactly that mortal and will die. Now, does this mean that, kind of cynically, we obviate the need for caring and love? 
because you know, human beings are mortal, impermanent phenomena. It would seem a way of self-protecting ourselves from the kind of pain that's inevitably going to happen. Well, the obvious answer is no, of course we don't. We don't distance ourselves from people because we know that they change and they die and they get sick and all the things that human beings do. In fact, this should open us up to even further caring for the other. A further sense of compassion, a further sense of fellow feeling. Now one of the things I said the other night, and even perhaps today, is that all of these beings, all of the beings we see around us, are striving for happiness in the only ways they know. Yet in doing so, the impermanent, frail phenomena that we all are create suffering, create pain, create anxiety, create all the ills that we see within the world. Now rather than a source of estrangement or cynicism, that really should open us up <coughs> to the real sense of compassion, the great compassion that we can have for others, because we are in a sense all in the same boat. All in the same boat. We're all in that struggling condition of trying to find some kind of peace, some kind of happiness. So, even those that hurt us in our relationships often do so incredibly blindly, not knowing why they do so. Now this doesn't excuse the actions, and I'm not suggesting it does. The actions of violence, aggression, willful hurt that can be inflicted on others. But it does help us to understand if we become aware, of course, that people act in a sense out of blindness of this not knowing what they're doing and the consequences of what they're doing. We also, for much of our life, don't act in the awareness of what we're doing. So when we search for something like permanence in the impermanent, we also don't know what we're doing. We might intellectually understand. And it's very easy to say, isn't it? It's very easy to grasp, to look around this world and say, oh yes, everything's impermanent. I know everything's going to die. Not me. <laughs> yeah. Everything's impermanent. Resonances that we have of that is, it's really easy to understand. But emotionally we don't. Emotionally we're kind of infants when it comes to this real understanding of what impermanence is about. Because, if we really understood, and let's not talk about human beings again for a second, why do we get so upset when something breaks, when something gets lost, when something gets stolen? We get upset, we get angry, all sorts of gamut of emotions that we run through when the impermanence the impermanence obtrudes, it thrusts itself into our faces. 
of what phenomena are, which is actually really ultimately impermanent and not the permanent things that we thought they were. So one of the main keys is to emotionally connect with the ideas that perhaps we readily understand intellectually. We need to, in a sense, take them into our heart and make them part of our emotional lifeblood as opposed to just a nice intellectual thought which I can understand. Now I'm not going to go into it but this is true even of the more problematic and slightly more difficult to understand aspects of Buddhist thought such as not-self. That too has to enter into our lifeblood, into our emotional lifeblood, not just our intellectual lifeblood, until we really understand there is not a permanent, abiding, fixed centre to your existence <coughs> or to anybody else's. Operative. There are not egos other than the gross manifestations that we see really there. They are kind of a phenomena that rises on a false understanding about the way things are. And coming back to what I said last night, what do we say that a Buddha is? Well, the Buddha is not enlightened, but awakened. Awaken to the truth of those things. Understanding reality and living in accordance with it. Now that's what it really means. To understand and to live in accord with what is. So again, taking that very large phenomenon of the impermanence of all things, it's not just to understand it, but to live it, to live in permanence. Now the great Japanese thinker Dogen, one of the founders of one of the Zen schools of Buddhism, said that's exactly what awakening was. It was living in permanence. That's all it was. The ability to live it. To have no false illusions about the way things really were. Now, coming back to the theme that I started off with, the theme of love, then love itself can't be a permanent thing. It can only be a changing phenomenon. And it changes in accordance with the way things are, with the circumstances. Now again, because of the illusions that we have we think of it as a fixed phenomenon. Particularly, you know, the whole notion of falling in love. It seems to cause more people pain than any pleasure, for one thing. But that falling in love is a kind of fixed phenomenon that will remain the same, rather than change, transmogrify, and move into different dimensions of love and care. Now if it's based on, again, the gratification, objectification, egos, 
then perhaps it's never really love in the first place. It's a search for gratification. Now I'll leave that as a suggestion, I won't necessarily go into any further, but if it is that, perhaps again that's why so much in the scare quotes, love is doomed to failure, almost from its inception. And why often that so-called love so quickly turns into its opposite, hate, acrimony, and everything else that goes with it, resentment. Because it was never really love in the first place, not in the Buddhist sense of love, of this openness to change, openness to the other, this lack of fixity and this lack of boundedness. So the kind of love that we're exploring in terms of meta-practices, albeit in a very, very small way in this weekend, are about opening up a field. As you can see, even just in the practices we've done, you're opening up a field of awareness. Those you like, which is quite obvious, those you dislike, which is not quite so obvious and not quite so easy, and those who you neither like nor dislike. Now that's a really difficult one, I and mean, we can talk about this perhaps even in the questions again, but often it's very difficult for people when you say to them, did you like somebody you neither like nor dislike? In fact, hard to think of a face, <laughs> because in a sense you don't even really see them at all. Often these types of people are merely functions in our lives, and we lack the sensitivity to even be aware of them <coughs> at all. Now I'm not saying this is true for all of you, that's a generalisation, but I often perceive this is the way it is for many people. So we're opening up a field of awareness which is often actually very, very narrow, again, in terms of our concerns, because we're often only concerned about those we like, those we're friendly with, those who are perhaps immediate members of our family, who we're concerned with. So we're opening up a big field of awareness. It's a big task. There's no doubt about that. Um, but as I said again, repeating something I said last night, that it's exciting if you're opening up a huge range of experience which has normally been closed down to it. So sensitization itself and awareness is key to the whole process is opening up a whole field which is normally inaccessible in our everyday experience. So that the world and our intercommunications with people, our day-to-day -day interactions, are conducted with far greater vibrancy, with far greater, to use a word which I don't think is misapplied, far greater passion than they would be in this kind of morass of egos relating to each other. So that's one of the exciting aspects of going into this whole process, of trying to open up this field. So from fixity and closure that we normally experience or attempt to close down our experience in terms of we open up something which is movement, change, 
vibrant, energy, colourful, lacking this boundary that perhaps we wish to place around things. Now often the older we get, I'm not saying for all, but for some, but often the older we get the more we close down life. Wishing to close it down in terms of the known, what we know, people we know. The one thing that often increases, and I see it very much rapidly on the increase in our society, is fear. There's great levels of fear within our society. And fear genuine, gen- generally of the unknown. So we close down our experience because we're fearful of the unknown. And I said, you know, kind of the gauntlet that Buddhism often throws down is you have the courage for freedom because freedom itself is an unknown because we only generally act in terms of the known and the unfree, in other words, the conditioned. That we are extremely familiar with. I often, again, joke but it's better often the suffering that we know than the one we don't. So we hang on to the one we know. <laughs> and don't allow ourselves the opportunity of something different. And I don't mean suffering, and I don't mean necessarily dukkha, but something completely and utterly different in our way of being. And it does take courage. It does take the overcoming of fear which is so deeply embedded in our psyches. Um, in fact, yeah, probably I think in Britain, probably in more than many other places in the world, um, we're encouraged to be fearful about all sorts of things. We seem to have insurance policies for everything um, in Britain. Now, we can't live like that. I mean, we can't live with an insurance policy for life because there isn't such a thing. There are no guarantees about it. We can attempt to live, perhaps, in a way which circumscribes our existence, closes it down, narrowing our range of activities, narrowing our range of commitments, narrowing our range of interpersonal relationships, all that sort of thing. We can close down until we can hopefully try and control it, hold on to it. But even then, even then, within that narrowly circumscribed existence, people die, things change, we lose our prized possession, all sorts of things happen. So no matter how tightly, tightly one closes it down because of fear, it still changes. So what we're trying to do if we're trying to build up these almost kind of <coughs> castle walls to stop the, you know, the fearful external world obtruding into our kind of fantasy world, then our house, our castle is built on sand. It has no foundation. And the walls will fall flat at some point, no matter how long we manage to keep them up for. Eventually they will crumble and they will fall. Because, again, of the implacability of impermanence. It's there, running like a tremor through our lives all the time. So we either embrace it 
accept it, take it on board, even in terms of our interpersonal relationships, our loving relationships, or we resist it. Those almost seem to be the two options. Now the Buddhist one is obviously the embracing of it, the taking it on board. And taking it on board then there becomes the possibility and the possibility, and the reason I describe it as a possibility is because it's up to each and every one of us as individuals. If we take this view on board, it becomes a possibility for genuine love. It becomes a possibility for genuine care. And it becomes a possibility for compassion. But if we cling on to false idealisation of the world and the way it is, <coughs> we cling on to false views about ourselves, false views of where happiness is to be found, then we close down that possibility, not just the time. We willfully desensitize ourselves, willfully retreat into isolation. And as I said, one of the things perhaps that dominates Again, I don't want to enter into discussions really about the Eastern world, but dominates the Western world is the sense of isolation that many people have. Living in huge urban conurbations, people feel immensely isolated, with millions of people sometimes around them. No sense of connectedness. No sense of anything shared. coming about, as I say, partly through the wrong views of living with this strong sense of self, the strong sense of my me, strong sense of mine, holding on to, attempting to hold on to that which cannot be held on to, ultimately. To do all of that, to live in isolation, is to often foreclose the possibility of love, to foreclose the possibility of compassion and to foreclose the possibility of any real understanding and opening to the world. Now, that does not have to be the case, and I think that's a really, really positive message that is there right in the heart of all of the schools of Buddhism, and not particularly selecting any school. All the schools of Buddhism is there is that possibility, if we recognise this, for genuine change, for genuinely opening, genuinely creating a path to awakening for ourselves. Now it's not going to happen all at once, it'll happen over quite a long period of time, but the excitement is not the getting there, perhaps, it's the journey, it's the engaging and opening up the world in a completely and utterly different way from the way that we normally approach it. I talked for an hour, yeah, three quarters of an hour, so I think I want to shut up <laughs> and open it to everybody else because I'm hopefully stuff I've thrown out which might have been provocative. <laughs> Stephen, how do you think that love turns into hate, and is that kind of love redeemable? I think the well, remember when I said that I said. Scare quote, love turns into hate. 
because it's not really love, it's about possession it's about gratification, it's about sexuality, it's about all sorts of things but it's not about love in perhaps the way that you know, I'm describing that Buddhism understands it in this genuinely opening to the other, caring for the other wishing them well, wishing them happy it's not it's actually about I want you because you're going to make me happy <laughs> as much as anything else and of course when in a sense the person leaves or they change or they no longer fill, fulfill the gratificatory um, function to which they're kind of enslaved then I think it turns into its opposite but it was never really love in the first place perhaps the challenging remark I'm making about this now I think that often sometimes, you know, sometimes not say often, sometimes things that are founded on that type of love can actually have their own momentum and change within the relationship and change into something else and it can be recognised that that is not what love is and that is destructive and it's dangerous. But that's love as possessiveness. It's not love in this you know, lack of possessiveness, which I think is talked about in Buddhism. So I don't think it's redeemable. <laughs> that's the quick answer to it. But it's certainly, it is changeable. Yeah, it's changeable. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.